One of the reasons that we love fintech so much is that if you're investing in a diverse founder, they're doing something else. <laughs> you know, they're creating access to a community that may not have access to traditional financial products. Zach Servideo here from Boston Speaks Up. This is, this is our third interview here today at Startup Boston Week. Shout out to Stephanie Rulick and the team at Startup Boston Week. They're amazing. And um, this is our first time on stage here. I think this is the first time we've done the pod podcast stage um, at Startup Boston Week. It sounds like it's been a big success. And so I hope that we'll be back. Um, also, shout out to, to Value Creation Labs. Um, that's, 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 I got a bunch of my crew here. Uh, we launched an updated website today. We are not just Boston Speaks Up. This is a cool way we show up in the world, but we are a modern consulting uh, firm that can do all sorts of agile solutions for any need that you can imagine. And I know that sounds ambitious, but we get it done. Um, I'm here with Senefer Mendoza. Senator Mendoza, I am going to call you Sen because that's how you sign your emails and it's going to roll off the tongue a little easier. Can I call you Sen? Yeah, that's perfect. Nice. Although, Senator, you're the first Senator I've ever met. It's Egyptian. Mm. So I'm from Cape Cod, but my parents were hippies. So I have an Egyptian name. So no Egyptian connection? No. <laughs> I can't wait to share this with my buddy Ronnie, Ronnie El Duwani. As you can maybe tell from the name, is in fact Egyptian. Um, played soccer with him in college, and um, I want, I'll, maybe he'll be familiar with the name Senefer. It's the first time I've heard the name. Um, I'm going to have to ask you some follow-up questions about your hippie parents in Cape Cod. <laughs> but first, since this is the beginning of the episode, and there will be a lot of listeners when we release this on demand, um, I want folks to be grounded in sort of like your present-day reality at Mendoza Ventures. So can mm -hmm. you please share what you're up to there? Yeah, it's funny when you ask that question at 5 p.m. <laughs> I'm like, my present day reality is coffee. Yeah. Um, it's like coffee or beer, yeah. or a glass of wine. Yeah, We're on the cusp. Yeah. Um, so our present day reality is we write checks to entrepreneurs with startups in AI, fintech, and cybersecurity. And 90% of the checks that we've written have gone to a woman, immigrant, person of color, underrepresented founder in any way, LBGTQ. So we use an inclusive definition of underrepresented. Um, and I do that all day. I just write checks. Like your hand gets really tired. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you have your checkbook on you right now? Yeah, we, we're very modern. Yeah. So we wire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but... I always say, everyone always thinks that venture capital is writing the check, but mm -hmm. in fact, that's about 5% of the job. Yeah. Um, venture capital is a double-sided marketplace between investors and startups. Yeah. Um, and so that's where most of my time goes, which I love. Cool. So I want to talk about your journey to venture capital. Um, as often is the journey, it's not a straight line. And so I'm curious, what was your first sort of introduction to, to VC and the job, that, like sort of what was, what was it that you were doing before VC that sort of like gave you the aha moment that you wanted to be someone that just went and wrote the checks and sparked some change so that those checks were going to folks from underserved communities that absolutely warranted opportunities to pursue their, their dreams? Yeah. 
it was too hard to work. <laughs> you know, I just, I, we have two kids mm -hmm. and my career started in commercial design. I'm actually a Suffolk University alumni, nice. um, which Haim is here and he'll be really mad if I don't acknowledge Sweet. that. So go Suffolk. Sweet, my um, wife graduated from Suffolk too. There we go. I have my master's in interior design. And so I was designing four and five star hotels internationally. And my co-founder and husband had two startups in our living room that needed to leave our living room. And so I became a COO and I COO'd his two startups. And we went through the raising capital process. And one of the things that we realized was that the experience of VC is that your money comes from a black box and then you're held accountable to that at quarterly board meetings. And we thought that if we had just been able to call the investors or known who the investors were in the funds that were deploying to us, we would have saved a lot of skin knees, a lot of months and a lot of burn. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so we set out to create that. And so we wrote our first check in 2016 to a local Boston company named Alice. Um, and that first check was $10,000. And now we're deploying checks of one to seven million into the A round of growth stage companies. Get it up. <laughs> Thanks. That's pretty awesome. So in seven years, you've gone from a $10,000 check to a one to $7 million check. In that time, what has changed in terms, or, 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 or maybe put another way, what's just stayed the same? Like, has it just been a, a similar approach? Like, are, would you consider yourself like an active investor? Like, you don't just wait till the next board meeting. Like, how do you help those who you write a check for? Do yeah. you listen to them and decide what it is that they want from you? And sometimes that's more or less active. Like, I'm sort of like, that's a really great trajectory that you're, that you're, you're still on. You're still <laughs> ascending. You're a shooting star. Um, talk to me more about like, what is it that, how has your approach created that kind of success where not too long ago, Bank of America is writing you a check and boom, you got a hundred million dollar fund. Yeah. Like, that's impressive. Thank you. <laughs> Anytime you put six years of work into like 20 seconds, it's going to sound impressive for all the founders out there. <laughs> um, so one of the things that we do is we meet with our startups weekly or biweekly. So we have a very close relationship with the founders and then we take a board seat. We're very active board members. Um, and we usually take an observer seat too so that anybody knows if they come to negotiate with us, yeah. we're not going to wiggle too much on that one. Yeah. Um, and we also... One of the things that we went to create was transparency. And so our first checks were really from individuals with talents that could help a startup in the Boston ecosystem. And we just went to scale that. And so if you have a fintech, connecting with the CTO of Bank of America is a huge value add for that company. Mm -hmm. And getting hands-on coaching through, here's how you get enterprise ready, that's really our secret sauce, is that we meet the startup where they are and coach them through scale actively. Um, and we don't pretend that we have all the answers. So if I am touching code or looking at code, something has gone incredibly wrong in the startup world. <laughs> well, can and I relate to that for a second? If, if I'm touching this thing to my right, mm -hmm. we're in trouble. Yeah. I'm good at this. Yeah. I'm not good at that. Yeah. So just... Exactly. <laughs> keep me away from that. Um, well, all right. So let's double click on FinTech. Mm -hmm. Because you said something interesting in the pre-podcast Q&A. Thanks for filling it out. And we just had Stanley Rameau on stage. And it, he represents a, a sort of new age sort of fintech, financial literacy, like 
like what he's doing at Renovest, which I love, and actually I already connected with my cousin because he's a he teaches financial literacy to teenagers. Because like, why don't we teach? Why couldn't we have learned all these things we learn as adults when we're younger? Oh my god! So I love, love, love as I'm sure you do what Stanley's doing. Um, but talk a bit about sort of like the sort of democratization of wealth, sort of like the types of fintechs that are coming about where there's like less taxes on individuals. And there's more opportunities to sort of like, you know, and there's some, because tr there's some trust that needs to be built mm -hmm. um, from the individual in the institutions mm -hmm. that sort of like lend and, and sort of like, you know, give opportunities to sort of acquire assets, build wealth. Um, so I'm curious to hear a bit of like your kind of fintech sort of POV and sort of like an investment ethos, you know, right now as you're sort of looking at, um, you know, companies like Renovest. Yeah. One of the reasons that we love fintech so much is that if you're investing in a diverse founder, they're doing something else. <laughs> you know, they're creating access to a community that may not have access to traditional financial products. I think the thing that I've learned through years of doing this is that when we boil it down, so often it sounds like a binary of like, there's the institutions and then there's the startups. And one of the things that we do is basically act as a cultural communicator between those two things. Mm -hmm. And very few people in finance get out of bed in the morning thinking, I really want to deny some mortgages today. Mm -hmm. Like, I really want to put some people down and no one actively participates in that. It's that we're dealing with an antiquated set of information that has defined a risk structure that the banks are following. And so I love investing in, a great example is Listo is one of our portfolio companies and they're democratizing financial access for the Latino community because they're not financially, they're just financially invisible. You know, they're just under, they have what we call in credit thin files, mm -hmm. um, but they're incredibly culturally financially responsible. And so the institutions are realizing the demographics of our country are changing mm -hmm. and we have to do something. And the fintechs are right there with the solution. Mm. What we find is that it just takes a little bit of extra work on both sides to get everyone working together. Mm. Um, and that's what we bring to the table. That's really interesting. So fintech, what other areas are you investing in right now? I think AI, one of them. Yeah, AI. Yeah. We've been investing yeah. in AI since 2016. Okay. Um, it's a space that we've always, I think, you know, AI is such a loaded word, so I'll just leave it at that, mm -hmm. that we've been doing it for a while. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and cybersecurity. And cyber, yeah. And we like cybersecurity um, because it often intersects with the other two. So our favorite oh, yeah. investments are yeah. ones that have, usually it's like AI fintech for cybersecurity yeah. or something like so that. So do you have any like friendly VC partners like Glasswing Ventures that, you, that you'll like ever like kind of do co-due diligence or invest with in New England? I, I bring up Glasswing because, so we actually have, I'll have to give you a copy. We have copies of our cybersecurity report here that right now we're doing a report on AI. So my business value creation labs, we do a lot of consulting, but we also do a lot of like kind of custom productions and we've been doing stuff for New England Venture Capital Association. And we've been doing these sort of deep dive reports on some of these industries that are really strong here. Um, Glasswing's interesting because they've been investing in AI since like the end of the 2000s. Um, but oftentimes is the case when we're exploring the AI companies they're invested in is that there's a very strong cybersecurity overlap. Mm -hmm. So it's a very long-winded way of relating to you here. And I'm just curious if, um, so AI and cyber, interesting overlap. How, how is the sort of VC community as you've found it in the last six years? Has it been warm? Has it been inviting? Have you participated at times in any VCA? Like, um, because I've, I've experienced kind of like all sort of 
ends of the both ends of the pendulum, I guess. I know VCs that like invest a lot with VCs in town. And I know some that more like do their thing here on their own and then like co-invest in like other cities and other regions. Uh, but what's sort of like what's your approach to sort of the venture community here? We started our firm by creating a national network. So we have offices in Boston and San Francisco. Um, and we're expanding. We're actually exploring two other cities to expand to right now. Nice. Um, and so that's always been our take. And so we have co-invested with Ecoast Angels locally, but that's the first local firm that we've co-led a deal with. And that okay. was into Canvas GFX, which is an amazing local female founder. Um, and so we've always relied more heavily on that national network. And we're not New England Venture Capital Association mm. members, actually. Mm. All right. We'll have to connect you with Ari Glantz. <laughs> so good. I don't, do you know Ari? Um, I think yeah. my partner's met him. Okay, cool, cool, cool. He, he's he's a good he's a good friend. Um, he's the the executive director over there. Um, all right. So in terms of of sort of your portfolio right now, because I really need to double click on hippie parents in Cape Cod soon. <laughs> I'm fighting the urge. Um, do you have any other companies in your portfolio that you want to sort of like double click on and just share with me, share with the audience um, that are just you're, you're particularly excited about, and I know you're excited about all of them, uh, but are there any that you'd like to share a little bit more detail about? Um, so the one I'm going to share today is Canvas. So okay. Canvas does complicated 3D modeling on the cloud. So it's um, like end-to-end -end documentation. So everything from manufacturing through maintenance. And it's a female founder, Boston-based. We're actually going to their office warming after this because they just raised over um, $2 million locally in their A. So oh, cool. we were really excited to co-lead that with Ecoast Angels. And Ecoast is actually a local group um, founded by Bill Nyan and Peter Shore, who exited Eris. And so that's been a really great co-investment relationship for us. Um, they're very hands-on, engineering forward. Um, I love Boston exits because we tend not to get too proud about it. You know? yeah. <laughs> We're a little bit New England about it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And this is one of those local companies that hasn't gotten a lot of press, but is doing really great things. That's really cool. Um, so Ecoast Angels, do they, I, I may be wrong, but it, do they come in even earlier? And they're bringing you into sort of like the A round, like because one one million to seven million dollar checks sound like are those A round checks that you're writing typically? Yeah, they are. So okay. we co-led the A with them. So you co-led the A with them. Are they were they around at like a pre pre Series A round? No, they weren't. No? We actually um, invested in Canvas out of our second fund. Okay. And it's one of our top performers out of fund two. Okay. And so we led their A. Okay. So are you and are you? It, it, with the multiple funds you have, are you are you investing at any other levels, or is it predominantly like you like coming in at that Series A level? So for this fund, mm -hmm. they have to have a million in revenue or more, mm -hmm. and they have to be based in the U.S. And yeah. so usually, especially in 2023, that's a Series A. Yeah, and you you brought this up um, in your very thoughtful and efficient um, pre-podcast answers. Um, one million in revenue, this is kind of the economy we're in. So if you're a founder right now, you're building a company and you're looking to raise capital, you're in particular looking to raise an A round, like, can you give a little bit of a, can you expand on that a little bit more? Like, it's, you're looking for sort of like positive cash flow businesses. Like, what's, is it, how important is profitability and EBITDA relative to just the revenue? And, and sort of, and how much is that different right now than it was in 2016, 17, 18? Mm. 
So in the market, it's very different, but it's not different for us. So I graduated undergrad in 2004. I like to say my entire adult career has been in a recession of some kind. And so we don't run the traditional VC model on the back end. Mm -hmm. So a traditional earlier stage fund like Up Through the B would invest in 50 or 100 companies. You'd have one or two unicorns that would return the fund. You'd have maybe 8% 10Xs and 85 to 90% losses. Mm -hmm. We didn't love how much burn was in that model. And also from a diversity and inclusion perspective, anytime you set up a model that's largely managed by a homogenous group and 85% of what you're investing in is going to be a loss, they're going to pick their winners early and they're going to look like them. And so the GPs only have time to lean into 10 or 12 of those portfolio companies anyway. So we do a longer diligence process on the front end. We spend three to six months with the company before we cut a check, which is long for VC. Um, And we really get to know the founder. We figure out if it's a fit. We figure out if we can help um, and track them on the goals that they're setting through those three to six months, do a thorough diligence process, and then lead with a slightly larger check Mm. with a stronger lead and board presence so that we can really activate when we when we get the cash in there. Yeah, Um, well put. And it's a different, so with our model, if we have five losses, five five X's and five 10 X's out of 15 companies total, we still get venture returns and everyone gets treated like a winner. So even my company that might lose, that founder still had a monthly or biweekly meeting with a GP that was accelerating their company as far as they could. Mm. Okay. Whereas like what we saw on the tale of SVB was that if you were in that 85%, you were calling your VCs and they weren't calling back. Right. And you can't, if you have 100 companies in your portfolio, you can't call everyone back. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to make those decisions earlier anyway. What's it been like scaling? So that's really interesting, the three to six months you spend in, and I could see all the value and trust that's built there to like, f- from your side and the entrepreneur side, or, or team side to sort of like have that, have you come in as a lead, like have that strong board presence. Um, but there, it sounds like there's a, there's a good level of investment resources there. Like, so what's, what's your team size makeup? Have you scaled up your team? Like how, how many folks are doing this sort of due diligence? So we have four full time yeah. and two GPs, which is a bigger staff for a hundred million dollar fund. Usually mm-hmm. it's one or two. Um, and as we continue to raise and deploy, we're scaling up associates now too. So our full-time, like fully loaded staff yeah. will be five to seven. And then we also run a fellows program where we take underrepresented MBAs and we pull them into the IC process so that they're graduating from their MBA program with a venture capital deliverable. Okay. And so they've been a huge asset. Our current MBA is from Babson yeah. um, and she has a law degree. Her name's Catalina Barros. <laughs> if anyone wants Shout to hire out. her yeah. after graduation. Yeah. Um, and they've been phenomenal because they also help with that load and they get the experience of working in tandem with a general partner instead of being with an associate for the summer. Okay, got it. From interior design, really, yeah. really interesting. So from interior design, you got your husband and his couple startups in your living room. So you're like, I'm going to COO these things to some interest in, in directions that get them out of our living room and then venture, venture sort of path. Really interesting. Let's talk a little bit about sort of your upbringing then. Like I'm, I'm, I want to unpack. So 
we got to go to the Cape. So we're in the Cape. <laughs> where in the Cape were you born? I was born. I'm, well, I was born in Boston, but I'm from Orleans. Boston. Yeah. Okay. What hospital were you born at? The Brigham. I was like one of the first babies when they built the towers. Oh, really? It was the '80s, so they nice. lost me. <laughs> I don't remember if I was Brigham. Was I Brigham and Women's or Beth Israel? Okay. Well, anyways, wait. They lost you? Or yeah, they, they were in you? construction and they moved the nursery, like it overnight. And so it's actually funny. My um, dad went to go find me, and he was wearing a suit. And so everyone assumed he was a doctor. Yeah. And they just handed him babies and he started feeding them. And so he found me. <laughs> he was like, this one's mine. You, you couldn't a, do yeah. that today. No. <laughs> no, but he, 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 he talk about inspiring trust and confidence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So born in Boston and then where on the Cape were, were you raised? I'm from Orleans. So I was raised Orleans. on Pleasant Bay, which nice. is like a really nice spot to grow up. <laughs> nice. That's cool. What uh, is that? Is there an Orleans, is there like a regional high school you go to there or like, or, or school, like what's the school system like there? Um, the yeah, regional yeah. is Nosset and yeah. it's like Orleans and the surrounding yeah. towns, but my parents were a little bohemian. Yeah. So I went to high school in Brookline in nice. Scottsdale, Arizona, and I graduated from Malden High School. Okay. Got it. Cool. And what did your parents do for work? Um, they were, my dad was an industrial designer mm-hmm. and my mom was an artist. Okay, Cool. And our, like, what kind of art was, what, was she have range? Was she a painter? Was she a musician? Like, she did, um, we called them junk sculptures. Okay. So she would do, there's actually one in my office. <laughs> okay. Um, she would do um, sculptures with, like, sort of like found objects from flea markets and things like that. And it would tell a story. Yeah. Um, and then my dad, um, he was a drawer. Like, so he was yeah. an industrial designer who did a lot yeah. with, like, Data General in the 70s and 80s. Cool. So that is interesting influence. And I can see now, is that part partially why you went down the design path? Yeah. I mean, I knew the arts. Yeah. And so I paid my own way through UMass. Mm -hmm. And so as a carpenter and a welder to pay my way through undergrad, Mm -hmm. um, I worked in the theater department and then I would work at the local road shows because you could do a show. So I could work until 2 a.m. and get paid by the hour Yeah. and then go to class at nine and I could make enough to pay rent and go to school. Yeah. Um, And so the arts were what I knew. And then I got my master's in interior design because comparatively that's really stable. (laughs) You know, it's like, like budgets of years versus months. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, and I was really, I was really passionate about creating something that people would experience and that they would walk through. Mm-hmm. And um, I did a lot of designing and worked at some local firms, and then helped Mohawk with their enterprise sales pipeline. And when I took a step back from the industry, I'm from Cape Cod. Like sustainability is has been ingrained in me from my grandparents. Like we were taught overfishing lessons, you know, when we were toddlers of you don't take the horseshoe crabs and you don't, you know, yeah. this is like part of like yeah. your daily walk when yeah. you're from the Cape. Right. Um, and so I actually got my lead certification when I was a designer and I just didn't see the ability to impact change. Mm-hmm. And I saw all of the things that women experience in the workplace and I just didn't find a way to solve it. And then once we exited our startup and we had grown these two companies and I had learned the world of tech, I just took a step back and said, 51% of the population is 1% of the general partners, not even the LPs. It doesn't get better as you go up the capital stack. Yeah, it just gets worse from there. And so it explains so much to me about all the stats that we all know about VC. And I just realized it wasn't going to change unless 
we all started writing checks, not like women or people like me or people in my position, like all of us have to start owning where our capital goes if we're going to change this. And so I think we all have these moments in life where we decide, even if I'm really bad at this, I want to do it. (laughs) You know, even if it's, it doesn't matter how nerve wracking it is or if I'm not, you know, the type of person that they would expect to do this or all of that stuff goes out the door when you care enough about something to be really bad at it and try it. And the great news is we're not bad at it. <laughs> like, yeah. We actually have, we, our first exit was a company called Good Dog Labs. We 5X'd it, sorry, we 10 x it in five months. It was two Latino founders out of South Texas that just needed some help positioning their company to the broader industry. Mm. And we exited it so fast. And so when we took a step back, we just said, this is not going to happen in Boston unless we do it. Mm -hmm. They were here in Boston. There was no way that they were going to get funded from Mm -hmm. the current ecosystem. And so we stepped in and we were able to change the entire trajectory of their lives from that one investment. And so once you have a moment like that, you just want to do it again. (laughs) You know, it's It's like, it's a, it's like a running high. I'm a runner. It's like an endorphin high. It's like, Oh, I want to, I want to go catch that again. I want to get that, that feeling again. They're as deserving as anybody else of opportunity. And we were able to create it. Yeah. So why not? Yeah. So I have a, so I have a few follow-up questions on this. Um, if you could, um, is what you alluded to like, the stories and things you had experienced in the workplace. Um, inequities is kind of what you were like for women. And were there, were there any moments that you, where you experienced something that you were like, that's fucking it. Like I am going to go and I'm going to come over the top and I'm going to write checks. Like, was there, you know, was there a particular sort of like, cause I, I, I have found like, like Boston can be that way. You know, Boston can kind of have like a very sort of like top down, sort of like, you know, older white male sort of dominant kind of leadership structure in a lot of, in a lot well, of places. Well, it's reflective in our yeah. capital. Yeah. The national average of venture capital is 2% goes to women and people of color. Yeah. Hannah Green published in Boston. No, in Boston, it's 0.8%. So like, that's not just a feeling. It's, it's how our capital is distributed. And when you talk about four, so you talked about this in the that Q and A. You talk about four hundred one k. You talk about like these uh, almost. I don't know if you'd put it this way. Like I, the way I took it is almost like there's low hanging fruit ways to sort of like ask questions and sort of like make sure that the capital that we all have that is going to work for us in retirement accounts, et cetera, is actually um, being appropriately like invested in like diverse. Uh, businesses and, and, and like, is that, is that right? Is that, is that a correct takeaway? Like what, what sort of, could you share that take a little bit with, yeah. with me here and with listeners? Cause I feel like that that's something that I hadn't really thought of before. So I think a lot of us have either financial planners or a product that you buy and you tuck your money away right. and you think it's just completely passive. Set it and forget it. Like yeah. a crock pot. But yeah. you bought that. Yeah. You're a customer. Right. So most people who have a 401k have five to ten to thirty thousand dollars in it. Yep. When was the last time you spent thirty thousand dollars on jeans? And I'll bet you you're thinking about where your jeans are coming from. Yeah. You know, you want to make sure it's from a company that's ethically sourced, mm-hmm. that you're not ruining the planet, mm-hmm. whatever it is. This is a financial product that you're buying. Mm-hmm. And in that situation, you're the customer mm-hmm. and you can ask all the questions. 
So you can ask whoever's managing your 401k or whoever your financial planner is, what percentage of the funds that I'm invested in are managed by people like me? Mm-hmm. Or am I investing in alcohol, tobacco, and firearms? Mm-hmm. Those are growth products. Mm-hmm. Um, am I investing in oil companies? Whatever your personal North Star is, your money is a vote in that direction. And so you can decide where that money goes. And I think because the financial system can be kind of obscure, people forget that they are buying something, that that's a transaction where they're purchasing a product. Mm -hmm. And if you graduated from a university, oftentimes the alumni association will call you and ask you to give to the endowment or the foundation. One of the number one investors in venture capital in the country is the endowments and foundations of universities and colleges. David Swenson started a model at Yale Mm -hmm. where venture was part of the growth portfolio. And so most universities and colleges invest in some form of venture now. Is that venture being managed by women and people of color or when you give to your university endowment and foundation, Mm -hmm. are you perpetuating a statistic that you may or may not agree with? Mm -hmm. Interesting. And you can ask. Yeah, yeah, cool. I'm planning on it. Um, very cool. You mentioned a 72-year-old st- woman woman startup that you recently invested in. Yeah, so sure? that's yeah. that's Patricia Hume, yeah. and she's with Canvas GFX. That's the party I'm going to after this. Okay, sweet. Um, and 72-year-old and 2.8 million in revenue this year. <laughs> that's so cool. Um, and so, and you're invested in um, like, can you talk like? Some other like, how much is your focus right now on Boston? You know, like your your setup and and I don't know if you can share the other two. Like, I'm I'm curious what the other two cities are you're looking at or what var- what what are the variables or factors in a in a community in a city that would compel Mendoza Ventures to sort of like put put a flag there. Yeah. So can you share a little bit about that? So we've been spending a lot of time in Dallas. Okay. Um, because we really loved getting to know the Texas ecosystem. Okay. Um, it's dynamic and it's fun. And I have two Latino children that love conchas. And so mm-hmm. like you can buy, it's, yeah. it's breathable as a yeah. Mexican American family. It's yeah. a different feeling. Yeah. Um, and we've been spending some time, we advise a fund in Houston. So we've been spending some time there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like that it's a newer ecosystem. You know, it's not um, trying to go up against Silicon Valley. And it's just a different pipeline. You know, our first exit was two Latino founders out of South Texas. We'd be Mm. silly to not look at Texas. Mm. Okay, cool. What's the other city? Um, Right now, it's pretty much Dallas and Houston that we're looking at. Oh, and Houston. Cool. There's, um, interestingly enough, Houston was on my radar for, you mentioned oil. You know, I, I remember when I graduated from from BU, my, one of my good buddies went and worked for Weatherford on the oil rigs down there, and you re- you realize what oh yeah it makes sense like big oil. and so Greentown Labs, and yeah. Dr. Reichert and Greentown Labs, biggest you know climate tech, I've had her on the podcast. I've learned climate tech. It's it's important. It's very it's focusing on climate tech in particular right now, um, but that's where their next that's where their next move was. You know they've set up in Houston, and so um, you talk about purpose. Um, I used to work and haven't worked as much in recent years as I'd like to with like solar panel companies and, and, and energy tech companies. And so I've been hearing really interesting things about Houston from an energy and climate tech perspective. Is, is that part of what you would be looking at in Houston? Um, I just, that comes to mind because I know the, the, um, 
economy there is very, very strongly tied to oil. I think um, Lemonster and Fitchburg showed us this week that climate tech is part of everything <laughs> going yeah. forward. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but we're really excited about the intersection of fintech and climate tech, especially when it comes to access and opportunity. There's a lot um, to be done there. And climate tech does not affect the entire population equally. Mm -hmm. But so much of that is also because of NASA. So Canvas GFX um, worked with NASA to build a satellite. It's part of the software that helps design satellites and telescopes and things like that. The Webb telescope was designed on it. Um, and so that ecosystem is just fun. I mean, I went to space camp when I was little, so, oh, cool. <laughs> so I was very happy to go do some diligence in Houston. <laughs> Would you like to go to space? Ooh, not as a tourist. Okay. Like, yeah, I'd, like, yeah, not like you want, like, would you... I would go, like, water the plants or whatever they if, wanted me to do. If there was, like, a small <laughs> colony being developed and you could go and, like, be there for an extended stay, like, you'd want to go, like, would you want to go visit space? I would say for sure if I could bring my kids and they were into it and we could have tamales. Okay, sweet. <laughs> so 9 and 11, what is it like being a badass VC mom and being present and taking care of the, you know, the top responsibility in your life, which is just being a parent. Like what, what's that juggling act like? How has it, co how's it been co-parenting sort of um, also sort of like just through like doing a business together with, with your spouse and all that? You have to be a good team. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you definitely yeah. do. And I um, imagine you are because you're still doing it and you're doing it well. But I feel like yeah. you should ask our kids this yeah. question because yeah. I feel like they may have a very different answer. It's an Eleven-year-old son, nine-year-old daughter. Is yeah. Did I get yeah. it right? Okay. Yeah. I'll have to. I, I should. I should ask them. They'd probably have a really different answer to this, but yeah. So far, I don't see them as mutually exclusive. I think part of my role as a parent is to leave a world in which they can actively participate in. And I have two Latino children. So yeah. if I want them to actively participate, I need to fix the capital stack, yeah. like now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my daughter is nine and she's already informed us that um, when she takes over the business, we're out. Yeah. The VC puppy's out. Oh, um, wow. And it's going to be rebranded as Kitty Capital. So if she wants to oh, raise, nice. we have to, we have some work to do in the capital stack. Wow. I'll actually kind of have a few more questions on this because I have a, my six year old is um, oftentimes with me um, in the home office. Like she'll, she'll be good. She'll be in the office. And she's, uh, she's declared that her business is Elsa Creation Labs, a nod to Value Creation Labs. Um, <laughs> And she and she's she really does love her Frozen movies. Um, I I actually have found it really interesting to um, like even though she's only six. Like I've like we work a lot with designers, and so we'll like we'll throw her like a design direction assignment. Like we're trying to reimagine. Like oh, we're gonna design like a, a pe you know like we want to represent a pen a pencil, and 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 she'll actually like her little brain will come up with like this like futuristic pencil design. Um, so when you mentioned in the pre-pod Q&A, like your interns were nine and 11, I was like, oh, that's our kids. So I'm just curious, like what are some ways you found, like do, do they naturally like ask to get involved? Like my daughter wanted to be here today. Um, and in, in, in the soon future, I want to start incorporating her and bringing her to things. I remember I was at a um, Venture Lane event, Christian Mogul's, daughter was there and she was in like high school and I just thought it was so cool 
and I'm a girl dad. I got my two. I'm like, I just, I'm like, oh, I want, I can't wait till like my girls. I'm like, and, but my six year old already wants to be there. So I guess long winded way of saying, um, are your, are your children, your son and daughter actually involved at some level in the business and, and sort of like, and also like, what do you forecast could be their involvement at an earlier age? Cause it's such an opportunity. It's such a, it's opportunity for them to sort of experience like, um, yeah, like be a part of a righteous mission that you're on to, to fix that, that those inequities, but also just learn really practical like skills. I would say that they've learned a lot of the practical, practical skills by osmosis. I mean, mm -hmm. my daughter knows personally like four female CEOs off the top of my head. So that's her world that mm -hmm. she's, I think that creates a huge opportunity. I think it, they also get to see part of the transactional nature of business. We have to unpack a lot for them. Being the child of a VC is kind of weird sometimes. Like if they're around, people bring them presents. <laughs> you know, it's a, we, we're always talking to them about what is their experience? What is the experience of all children in Boston? And what can you do today to make it more of one city for all of us? Mm -hmm. And they are learning that. I see it in their day to day and they're carrying it forward. Mm. Um, and that's all that I want them to learn. I think it's up to them if they decide to participate in private yeah. equity or VC in yeah. some way someday. Yeah. Um, but my job I see is making that a possibility, yeah. which you know, my daughter's pretty savage, like 2% is not going to be enough for her. Mm. Um, it doesn't sound like it's going to be enough for Alice's creations either. No, it's not. <laughs> um, she told me the other day, she goes, daddy, she's like, sometimes you work a lot. I was like, yeah. And she's like, I don't, you're not going to be able to work so much um, because you're going to have to work for me. And I was like, hell yeah. I was like, yeah. I like that she's cutting your hours though. That's she's very like, Gen Z. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. She's totally like, you know, you're going to work a 32 hour week, you know, um, <laughs> definitely forget Fridays, like not show up till 12 on Mondays. Um, I feel like my yeah. daughter is the opposite. She's yeah. like, I don't know if you're kitty capital material. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, she's like, you don't have to, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in right now. We'll see. We'll see if it changes in three years though. Yeah. The difference between six and nine. I mean, there's, you know, what do I have? Uh, you probably could tell me what's, what was the future looking like for me? Um, <laughs> Minecraft. <laughs> yeah. More games. And it's interesting. Cause like she's at, we're in Beverly, Beverly public schools. And, um, there's like an app and they take pictures, you know, they'll like share a few pictures here and there during the week. And, um, they're, they're spending some time during the day with like headsets on, on, on tablets, doing some of their e-learning stuff. And it's like, wow, you know what? Like, we never even had a conversation about this. This is just how it is. Like, it's just all of a sudden, like our kids like are like learning on tablets. Now, now granted, like we've, we've embraced um, Osmo mm -hmm. and like my, like we got like the coding one and yeah. I was sitting down with Mila and I was like, oh yeah, no, we should do this. She goes, and her intuitive little brain, like totally figured out the complex, like, cause you're, they're just learning how to program, like stacking things together on the pad. And then it does it in the game. I'm like, oh, I didn't see it that way. Oh, damn. What's happening right now is my six-year-old is getting way smarter than me mm -hmm. already. Um, so I, I have like, there's actually um, one of the guys that works with us. Um, his older brother is at a startup called Vanta, which is out of Boston. And I, I actually love to like work more closely with because they're kind of creating like, um, this is all tied to gaming, gaming, esports, little leagues where they're partnering with schools and they're like creating like, they're like sanctioned, like, like there's, there's, um, 
there's like mentors, there's oversight, they're, they're overseeing bullying, there's coaches, and it's like they're trying, and they're focused on games that have like a lot of, um, that have like, um, you know, uh, le you know lear learning opportunities, et cetera. And so it's, it just seems like it's really early in its infancy, but I feel like hopefully if we can kind of land this plane in the right way, like we're not gonna be able to avoid gaming. So Minecraft's in my future, gaming's in my future. Hopefully like, I'm really worried about like the metaverse, right? I was out in LA seeing like where the metaverse is, everything's a little earlier there. Mm -hmm. And so I'm worried about like cyberbullying in the metaverse. So I'm like, I'm like a couple worries ahead of like <laughs> gaming right now and social media. Um, so I guess how do you sort of like, what are the rules with playing Minecraft? Like in, in sort of like how plugged in it is to sort of like, and there's like levels of like vulnerability in, in sort of like these, these gaming communities because it's very, very open. It is. We have, so we audit their messages. Like mm -hmm. we do all that stuff and they don't have the ability to just friend everybody. Yeah. Um, and for us, it's, I feel like we can't come down on them too hard because we're bad about it. Like, yeah. <laughs> we're, like we're VCs. Like I'm on the phone with founders sometimes yeah. Saturday at 9 p.m. Yep. Um, you know, sometimes we're answering emails at 11. So we try and set broad rules of, okay, these are the rules in our house. Like we have a 7 p.m. shutdown so that we can all regroup before bedtime. Um, and we have these touch points during the day. But we try to teach them the infrastructure around making good decisions. Mm -hmm. And then because they're children, you have to audit how the decisions are going. Um, and that's been, I think it's a process. I feel like I'm less worried about Web3 because there have been these moments which you can see them doing something totally different. So for me, it was when my son was little and Mario was just in 3D and he was manipulating yeah. everything in 3D without even yeah. thinking about it. And, you know, when we learned video games, it was like a ticker. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was, and I was like, he's, his spatial concepts are just going to be totally different. And yeah. I see it in my daughter is building these amazing creations in Minecraft that I had to learn Revit to draw yeah. or, you know, I had to go to grad school to yeah. learn how to draw in 3D in that way. Yeah. And she's doing it at the age of nine. Yeah. So for me, when I was little, it was my mom printed something when we got our first, I'm dating myself, it was the 80s. And my mom printed something when we got our first computer and my grandmother's face looked like a sorcerer had come into the room <laughs> and delivered a paper because she was a typist and yeah. she, ran a, she ran a company. She had to type everything herself and just seeing something come out, it was, you could see the leapfrog that had happened in her generation. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I see it in that Web3 integration of tech will always be part of their lives. Yeah. We have to teach them how to self-advocate for a break. Yeah how to manage it, how to create healthy boundaries yep. um, and how to shut someone down who's getting in your face, which you have to teach them in real life too. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. I'm glad we went down the parenting track a little bit because it's important. It's like part of the full picture of Center for Mendoza too. Like you're, <laughs> you're a mom of two children. You're all a, like, you're a VC, you're, a, you're, a, you're a wife, you're, you're a part, you're a partner in the household and partner in business with your husband. So it's like, I, um, in a lot of ways, like, um, it's, it's nice cause it, it, it speaks to, um, I'll just give you like, a, I'll give you where my mind goes as I, as I admire, like how it's, it's working for you. And, and right now it's work, you know, like I, I have my own business, my wife's, you know, my wife supports me and supports the business and we have a really good partnership. 
But I, I just remember when I graduated, I graduated from college in 2007. I remember my first job, it was Schwartz Communications, big PR agency. I probably remember it, like mm -hmm. all the high, you know, the high tech PR agency. Um, and and I, they told me like first week that I had to create a, two, a second Facebook account because they were like, you have to be, you know, personal Zach and professional Zach. And I was like, but there's only one of me. <laughs> Like, I, like, and I remember I was like a bit cavalier and I was like, that's kind of bullshit. Especially in PR, that's really interesting. I was like, <laughs> I made, it was just, it was 2007 and people didn't know what the fuck they were doing. And I, and I was just like, and so like, there's going to be like more like, like, but what, what's what been really cool is just like dig, digital's proliferated. You know, you look at an industry like fast, free ad supported streaming TV. Like, you know, like just look, look at an industry and it's like digital is just like completely just transformed everything. Mm -hmm. um, and... But one thing it's done is it's sort of like, I think, I think people like people are people like no shit, um, and you know our we just like our kids are like they're individuals and they're gonna be sort of like these versions of themselves that exist, um, you know, in the home, in the classroom, in the workplace as a solopreneur, um, and so like the best way that we can support them is like instilling in them like how to make the right decisions, how to be good people, um, you know, how to have, you know, how to have a brain trust and like seek counsel and not, you know, not get too caught up in like their own little, you know, vacuum of, of ideas without sort of like bouncing things off people and, and, and being, you know, em embracing their Brene Brown and being vulnerable. Um, shout out to the Brene Brown parenting manifesto. <laughs> um, so I just, it's, 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 I just so I'm excited. So I, I want to come back to an optimistic place because I was like, oh, I'm, I'm a little, I am a little sour on, on Metaverse, but I'm happy that my daughter gets a report card on EQ. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like empathy, like empathy, like, oh, you know, as many stars as you can get. It's like <laughs> compassion. Like, it's just like, oh, cool. And, and yes, she's loves STEM and she's learning and she loves math and she's learning math. But like, there's a focus on emotional intelligence um, and soft skills that I think is more important than ever. Um, so we're doing that in the house. You know, we do that in our households and hopefully that happens in schools and, and cross our fingers and we still have anxiety and stress out because it, being a parent is a forever <laughs> sort of thing. Well, and I'm um, glad that yeah. we covered it too yeah. because no one ever asked the male VCs how they're raising their children. Interesting. You know, like, no, I don't think Adrian's been asked in an interview. How, how are you doing it? Yeah. How are you being a, a VC and yeah. a dad? Yeah. And he is an exceptional father. Yeah. And um, he is as much of this as I am. You yeah. know, it is six and I'm not feeding them yeah. right now. There's a reason why I started talking a lot about kids too. Yeah. This is like the witching <laughs> it's hour. It's the transition time. Yeah, like 5.30 dinner, <laughs> like six. It's like, no, you can't have dessert. You don't have dessert every night of your life. I'm not. I'm full, but I'm not full for dessert. That's probably being said right about now in this video household. Yeah. Um, it's interesting you bring that up. I like just somewhat feel like it's worth like it's it's warranted to say. I like to sort of talk about parenting with anyone I have on. Yeah. So I do want to call out the fact that it's not just because you're a woman that I'm having this conversation with you, but it's good to hear that your husband's a great partner and, 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 and father, but it's a bummer to hear that if people, if, if, if he's in a, uh, an interview with the format where people are trying to get to know him, if they don't ask him about being a parent, it's kind of weird. 
Yeah. It's kind of weird. Yeah. Um, for me, that's kind of like, what's the best thing I can do? A lot of listeners what? are younger. A lot of the listeners don't have kids yet. But I, I, what I like to do is to just, some of the guys here are like folks that I've hired or they're like doing internships from like Endicott College where I'm EIR. And I just want them to see like, this is like, there's a way to do business. You know, there's a way to live your life and be, but, but it's, it's family first. Like a lot of the people that like working with me, it's because I am a father and that's the number one priority. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's a bummer things, that it's that way. I underestimated when we started this company, what a big deal it would be that we were just open about being parents. Like I've had so many women come and thank me for, you know, my kids have Zoom bombed on interviews. You know, you've been through all this. My, but yeah. But women have like I invite me. them for the Zoom bombs. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. right? I'm like, yeah. you should get to know Ellie. She's yeah. going to run the place, yeah, she's apparently. Gonna, you're gonna, yeah, get to know Mila. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Her favorite color is pink. I love the name Ellie. Mila has a really good friend named Ellie. Oh, cool. Yeah. I like Mila too. It's nice. awesome. Um, but like, it, I didn't realize what a big deal that was at the moment. You know, it was just, yeah. we were making it work and we, had a, we have a company and we have kids and... Mm -hmm. A lot of the times they're with us and they're in meetings or they're, you know, playing yeah. um, switch in the back of the office yeah. or something. But that transparency has set such a precedent for the MBA fellows that come and work with us that see us juggle it. Yeah. And the companies that we fund get to see us juggle it. Yeah. Um, and that has a much bigger impact than I ever thought it would when right. we started. Right. Before we get to the final question, like anything else you want to share or, or maybe sort of like what you're excited about for the future. So start, you know, we're here at Startup Boston Week, you know, again, like shout out to Stephanie Rulick and her team for having us here. Like this is, this is great. It's been amazing. She's brought us together. Um, what, what are you excited about in the Boston startup community or, and or like with Mendoza Ventures kind of as this year unfolds and heading into, I can't believe it's around the corner, 2024. Uh, we're deploying more capital throughout the fall and writing, writing millions of dollars <laughs> yeah. to women and people of color makes me really happy. Hell so, yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm excited about that. I think that there is a huge opportunity in Boston to reset the tone of inclusion and capital in this city. Mm -hmm. And I am elated to be a part of that. Yeah. You know, our office is on Newbury Street and the three Latino businesses on Newbury Street right now are us, the dry cleaner and the taqueria. And okay. I'm not gonna leave it like that. Yep. And so I am excited to be part of the change where our entire city feels Bostonian and less of that top-down approach that you were talking about. Yeah. And I think the groundwork is being laid through networks starting to work together yeah. in a more proactive way and through honestly new wealth in the city that's more diverse than wealth in Boston has ever been before yeah. to give back and to seed startups that look like them. Yeah. And I am elated to be part of that because every Bostonian deserves the chance to raise a round. Yeah, well said. And I do want to connect you with Ari because I feel like you could be a really, uh, you could sort of catalyze more VCs and and check writers to sort of like follow your lead and co-invest sort of in the direction you're taking it. And I know it's important to any VCA, obviously like Jody, who used to be in Ari's roles over at Hack Diversity now. Um, there's good momentum in Boston. Mendoza Ventures is like really driving so much of this momentum to have more people of color and women invested in. And so a lot of what Boston Speaks Up is about is sort of like 
talking to people from different backgrounds, from underrepped communities, lifting them up, making information sort of like accessible to all. And I'm really honored that we've had all this time together um, and really grateful for you being so present with me. And at, in the five o'clock, the <laughs> six o'clock witching hour, um, last question, I always like to ask this question to folks, what's your challenge to the audience? Um, sort of could be anything, something that you do or something you want to you know, create a challenge for yourself with them, but just some sort of practice or, or something that you want to challenge, challenge folks on. I mean, my challenge is always write the check. If every woman wrote the check, 51% yeah. <laughs> of women would be funded. Yeah. Um, so that's the challenge I always like to leave everybody with. And it doesn't have to be an out there, over there, millions of dollars of check. Yeah. Our first check was 10K. So yeah. I always say, if you can save up 10K, you can yeah. change the world. Yeah. Um, or if you have a 401K or a Robinhood account or whatever yeah. it is, look at where it's going and ask questions about where it's going. Or the next time your college or university asks you for a donation, ask them yeah. where that's going. Yeah. Um, and that's the challenge because I think if we just had more transparency into finance, mm -hmm. we would have more accountability into finance. Yeah. Well said, and and it's probably already your thought leadership sort of like agenda and approach, but perhaps you can help pull back the veil, you know, the 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 veil on just, hey, it's it's not so hard. Like like help. Like I feel like if I could go as far as to like dip into like strategy mode, it's like I feel like a good go to market strategy for Mendoza Ventures, sort of like making that challenge, helping stoke, make it easy for people to meet that challenge is showing up in the world with like, this is what you do. Like, here's the playbook. Like, it's not that simple. Cause I think a lot of people are probably like unsure, like, okay, so, oh, I have a, I have an IRA. I have an SCP IRA. I have a 401k. I have these things. Like what, what steps do I take to be in a position to like, you know, write a check out of the capital I have to invest? Like I can be an investor. I can be, write the check. And so, you know, b like break the, sort of breaking that down and making and making sort of like check writing accessible to people that aren't VCs and 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 sort of you know, maybe they're not having accomplished as much as you had in 2016 but sort of like that that 2016 version of your story how can that story be something that um, you can open source and 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 get more people to sort of like onboard into like check writing is so that's exactly yeah. what we do. Hell so yeah. we have a, our $100 million fund is for qualified purchasers and we're running a sidecar $10 million vehicle for accredited investors yeah. so that we can, and I'm like, steal this model. <laughs> um, that's awesome. So that we can yeah. take like so many of our- And thanks for just letting me catch up and like, well, clearly you can see like, I haven't maybe looked as closely, but no, like that, awesome. that's awesome. Like so like, many of our awesome. investors are people who are like, lawyers or doctors who say yeah. like, I went to the other VCs and they didn't want me as an LP. Yeah. How do I do well, this? Well, I actually want to have a follow-up discussion with you about this then. Yeah, we yeah. can totally For do VCL. that. For VCL. And like, yeah. we've been thinking about ways that we would want to deploy capital and this would be the path, uh, a pathway that we'd want to, would want to do so. so yeah. So we yeah. do it at every stage. Like yeah. we do it with founders. We say that we, so this summer we launched Mendoza Impact, which is our yeah. nonprofit arm. Yeah. And we do it with founders, funders, and fellows. Because cool. we're going to have to get the founders educated. We're going to have to create a new class of funders. And we're going to have to skill up MBAs that are underrepresented in right. order to right. make our industry look like our country. Yep. Yeah. Amazing. 
Senefer Mendoza, you're awesome. Thank you're you. Awesome. Uh, Startup Boston Week, thanks for having us. That's a wrap. Thanks, guys. Boom. Take care. Cheers, Boston. <laughs>